Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines, gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world, with over $1 trillion in trading volume on the platform per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with transparent fees. Create an account today at eToro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O.com. CypherTrace cutting-edge cryptocurrency intelligence powers anti-money laundering, blockchain analytics, and threat intel. Leading exchanges, virtual currency businesses, banks, and regulators themselves use CypherTrace to comply with regulation and to monitor compliance. Crypto.com. Get their app and buy crypto at true cost with no fees or markups. Get a metal MCO Visa card with up to 5% back on all your spending. Want more? Download the Crypto.com app today. Today's guest is Stephen Becker, President and Chief Operating Officer of the Maker Foundation. Welcome, Stephen. Hi, Laura. Thank you very much for for having me today. This is um, quite exciting. This week, MakerDAO launched Multicollateral DAI. What is Multicollateral DAI? In short, multi-collateral die is digital cash. That's it. And um, what is so exciting about this launch is that multi-collateral die really manifests the, the, the total vision of what the protocol can actually do. Uh, beforehand, we had single collateral die, and really what that meant was die um, that could be generated would be generated off one collateral type. But now, as the name uh, um, shows, multi-collateral DAI really expands the possibility to any collateral type that can be put into an ERC-20 form. And what are the benefits that the MakerDAO system gets from having multiple collateral types? So when we have a look at single collateral DAI, when you have to take a step back and have a look at it, it becomes very interesting because you see primarily a stable coin being DAI. And that stable coin is generated from a, a single collateral type. So in essence, what this protocol was uh, was creating was, was really just a stable coin. Multi-collateral DAI really brings the full uh, um, spectrum of potential of the, the protocol to the blockchain. And what is that full spectrum? Well, here's the interesting uh, part about it. DAI as a stable coin really is a byproduct. What is really important to understand about the Maker Protocol is that it is two tenets of an economic engine, that being collateralization and credit generation. So what multi-collateral, uh, the multi-collateral element brings is the ability to collateralize with anything that you can possibly turn into an ERC-20 token 
but also more importantly, you have recourse to in terms of claiming against it. So what it brings to the system is the full view of creating this economic engine that facilitates this blockchain economy that could possibly uh, start augmenting with the, with the traditional analog world. That's really the potential that's been released right now. And at the moment, the system just takes one additional token as collateral, which is Brave's BAT token. And I noticed as of Wednesday afternoon, only about 3% of DAI had been created from BAT. How does MakerDAO decide which new collateral types to add? Is part of it based on demand or like why was BAT the first selection? So this is really interesting. It comes down to governance and how governance works. And what uh, BAT really showcased was how governance brought a collateral type into the system. Um, the potential for you know, further collateral types is really in the hands of maker governance, and there is a long list that um, uh, the folks are considering. But essentially, what has happened is a list was compiled and curated by the community, by uh, maker governance, and by the, the internal risk team. The discussion was had over a, a number of weeks, if not a number of months. Um, once that list was, was curated and, and put into a votable form, then everybody ranked the, the list. And the, the top token that was selected was, was BAT. So consequently, BAT was then put into a governance protocol, a, a governance proposal, which is just yet another step in the uh, um, the governance process, which allows you to reduce contention and focus on what you really want to include in the system. And when it passed the governance proposal, it was included into into the system with the deployment of multilateral DAI. So BAT isn't just the one uh, collateral type that was considered, it was really the showcase of how any collateral type could be considered and brought into the system. One other piece I want to dive into is how you make a transition like this. Single collateral die is has been the system for years now. And obviously, <laughs> I mean, you guys reached a big milestone. I think there was like $100 million worth of Ether locked up in single collateral die. So how do you move everybody over to this new system? So that's actually the, the exciting point as well, because releasing multi-collateral die brought really two new features. The first one, as I mentioned beforehand, is the introduction of multi multiple collateral types. The second part is something called the DSO, the die savings rate. And this new feature is pretty much an important uh, uh, point to consider with respect to the migration. In single collateral DAI, you could generate your DAI and obviously use it as digital cash. Likewise, folks in the community, folks in the, the ecosystem could purchase DAI and use it for transactional purposes. But in order to be able to uh, um, you know, earn something on your DAI, you would necessarily have to go to the secondary lending platforms. and stick it with them, and they in turn would uh, you know, create a return for yourself. With multi-collateral die, the die the savings rate allows you to take your die and simply stick it into a smart contract, and which is absolutely amazing because you get paid for doing that. But what is really interesting is that your die goes into the smart contract, but doesn't get used. 
So you don't have a central party counter risk, uh, sorry, a central party or, or counterparty uh, uh, risk or credit risk. So what you've effectively done is just put your die into a system and you've got effectively paid for it. So there's a lot of demand with respect to that. So that's one reason you're going to see folks migrating from a single collateral die to multi-collateral die. The other reason you want to, to move across to a multi-collateral die is obviously because the ecosystem is going to become a lot more robust and a lot more scaled. That's what the multi-collateral component really brings to the system as well. It allows you to scale the system and by including collateral types that are uncorrelated with each other, you bring a robustness into the system that keeps the stability of the the um, the die stable coin in check. So there are very specific incentives, DSR being one of them. There's also a difference in stability fee. So you'll find that the stability fee is um, a lot lower with the multi-collateral, not a lot lower, but 1% lower with multi-collateral die, and there's a die savings rate. So there's two economic incentives to migrate across, but in terms of the structural features of multi-collateral die, the increased robustness and stability is another reason to migrate across to multi-collateral die. Well, one thing I wanted to ask about the die savings rate is, so it is, it's 2% now, and I get that that's more than you would get from creating a SI, but what a lot of people are doing is putting SI in things like com in Compound or DYDX, mm -hmm. and both of them are offering interest rates of over 5%. And I saw mm -hmm. like Camilla Russo in her newsletter, The Defiant, pointed out, you know, for a lot of those people, they don't really have an incentive to switch, um, which I agree with. So you know, mm -hmm. I, I see, you know, the comparison that you're making, but within the larger ecosystem, it doesn't feel like there would be an incentive. Well, from that standpoint, you need to take a bit of a step back and say, well, strictly speaking, what is the die savings rate and how is it comparable to what you see on the secondary lending platforms? And this is where it really becomes incredibly interesting and very innovative. So the die savings rate, as I mentioned to you, you put your die into a smart contract. So that die belongs to you, that smart contract belongs to you, and your die does not get used. So what you've got is this new interpretation of a risk-free rate. Your die does not get used, it doesn't get uh, rehypothecated out, it doesn't get loaned out, there isn't credit generated on the back of the, um, the die that you put into the system. You literally lock up your, your die into a smart contract and you get paid for that. Now, what's interesting, as I just mentioned, it redefines the idea of what a risk-free rate is. What you're looking at is in a secondary lending platform, your risk is the counterparty. Your risk is the organization that is effectively using your, uh, your asset to provide loans. So you have counterparty risk, you've got credit risk that you have to consider, and you need to be compensated for that. So there's a premium that is required. When you have a look at the DSR, the risk-free rate, I kind of like to now term it as the trust-free rate, because that rate is not dependent on a, on a central party or a counterparty. It's dependent on the decentralized protocol. So what you're really doing is you're getting paid 
by relying on a decentralized protocol as opposed to a central uh, counterparty. Okay, yeah, so I see it is in a way a more abstract argument, but obviously in this ecosystem, these ideological or philosophical arguments do carry a lot of sway with certain people. Um, all right, so we're going to discuss more about how the system made a transition like this in a moment. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Crypto.com sees the future of cryptocurrency in every wallet. Have you seen the MCO Visa card? A metal card powered by crypto, loaded with perks including up to 5% back on all your spending and unlimited airport lounge access. They pay for your Spotify and Netflix too. What's not to love? With Crypto.com, not only can you spend your crypto, but you can grow it too. Earn up to 6% per year on the most popular coins like BTC, XRP, LTC, and up to 12% per year on stable coins like PAX or TUSD. Just a few taps before you start receiving interest every week. Join the over 1 million others and download the Crypto.com app today. Will the world follow France and advocate banning privacy coins? Will government-backed stablecoins become the new fiat? Are distributed and peer-to-peer exchanges just a flash in the pan? The answer is maybe. Virtual currencies can flourish and create a new, private, and more versatile economy. But that grand vision can't happen without keeping crypto clean. And that requires support of governments and accountability for bad actors. Privacy-enhanced compliance using cryptographic controls has the potential to preserve anonymity without compromising legitimate investigations. CypherTrace is working on this vision of the future. Sign up to stay up to date on the Privacy-Enhanced Compliance Initiative and receive authoritative crypto AML reports quarterly www.cyphertrace.com slash keep crypto clean. Back to my conversation with Stephen Becker. So um, one thing that I also wanted to ask about was just because the MakerDAO system is a DAO, meaning that it's supposedly decentralized, for you guys to, you know, essentially create this new system, how do you kind of make the transition happen in a way where it is actually still somehow decentralized, even though there were you know, certain identifiable players who were creating this new system? So the one interesting um, component of the space that I've found, and um, I come from the traditional finance background, the value that's been created in this decentralized world actually is at the intersection of, you know, centralization and decentralization. Um, If you think for a moment about, uh, Bitcoin and Ether, where does it get majority of its value from? Well, it gets majority of its value from exchanges through price discovery. And which are the main exchanges that uh, bring up the, the bring about the price discovery? Well, those are centralized exchanges. So there's an irony in there that the true value of the system is really where the analog world meets the blockchain world. And that really is also the underpinnings of what I think will generate um, a new sort of economic regime where you'll find the traditional world dovetailing with the blockchain world. So ideally, what what you're looking for is a clear use of governance that doesn't fall into the old buckets that everyone is used to. So when folks think about governance, they always think about representative democracy. 
And then when they think about representative democracy, they start thinking about, well, how can you influence it? And then from there, you get to plutocracy, you get to gerrymandering and whatnot. Where when you have a look at a DAO, the thing that you've got to really focus on is, well, what are you deciding on? What is governance focusing on? Now, if you make it as broad as possible and say, well, governance can decide on pretty much anything they would like, well, you might find that there is a, a, a possible edge case with plutocracy that a large whale comes in and says, I would like to turn the Maker Protocol into an ice cream factory. Well, if they had enough influence, they could possibly make that happen. But what makes the Maker Protocol so unique is that that governance is constrained within something we call scientific governance. So you, as an MKR holder, get to decide on specific parameters within the confines of scientific governance. You don't get to decide on changing the maker protocol to an ice cream factory. You only get to decide on the stability fee, the debt ceiling, the liquidation ratio, these parameters that can use best practices and best models to figure out what those numbers should be. So if you as a whale came along and you decided that the stability fee should quadruple and the community can see that there is no basis for that rationale, it can be argued that that is an incorrect action to take. And if the whale is insistent and decides that they need to move forward with this and they'd like to influence it against the better judgments of scientific governance, they will be up against the, um, the community with the ability to initiate something called emergency shutdown. And if there is emergency shutdown, it is a recognition that someone, even a large whale, is attempting to you know, sway the vote to their benefit. And if that's the case, there's a potential that that whale could actually lose their um, their MKR. And that is what keeps it balanced. And one other thing I was wondering is what will happen to Psy going forward? Like how, you know, presumably the goal is to kind of close down that system. But as we already mm -hmm. mentioned, people may not have incentives to move off of it just yet. So how are you going to get people to move off? And what is the goal? You know, what is your ultimate goal of what to do with Psy? Well, you know, keep in mind that this protocol is decentralized. So it's, you know, from the foundation's uh, point of view, we together with the community have a look at how the migration is, is going. And if we find that the migration is too slow, if size is not moving across, then there are going to be obviously levers that you can use to, to keep, to get the incentive going. Now, as you pointed out, um, folks on the secondary lending platform, you know, they may not look at my, my ideological stance and say, oh, that makes a lot of sense. You know, therefore, I'm going to stop earning 5%. They're going to look at it and say, well, that's 5%. I'm earning it. 2% doesn't appeal to me. No, thank you. But what really is important here is that governance and the community and the stakeholders can come together and say, well, we should then push the, the DSR up to 5%. We maybe should bring the stability fee down considerably. There are a lot of levers in place that will create the economic incentives for folks to move across. The interesting aspect about economic incentives is that there's always the sense that folks just look at the, the superficial numbers and that is effectively what's sufficient to them. 
I think there are a lot of um, uh, folks out there that are sufficiently, uh, they're, they're proficient enough to understand that if you earn a high interest rate from a specific organization and you see a lower interest rate offered somewhere else, you should be able to reconcile the difference and understand why you are getting that extra premium. So from this point of view, it's really a case of saying, well, you can use those levers to adjust where necessary. So the superficial uh, um, sort of economic incentives are in play to move folks across. But ideally, I think a lot of folks will rely on the stability and robustness of the, the new protocol and migrate across. So what happens to SI? Well, the two systems remain in place until a critical mass of um, size migrated across. What is that critical mass? Well, that again is up to MKR governance. This is a decentralized protocol. But once there's critical mass that's been that's been brought across, then what what remains could be um, there could be a, a nice sort of marketing campaign to say, okay, there's only a few folks left. Please uh, 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 migrate across, and at one point. Governors will come out and say, that's enough for us. We're going to institute um, shutdown on single collateral die. And folks that have um, PSI will end up with um, ETH in their wallet. So that is, in general, the process that we go, that's, uh, uh, the protocol is going to follow. The time frame, again, is up to, to make a governance. This could be in the next month, or this could be something that uh, um, you know, stays running for the next six to six months to a year. It really is dependent on governance and how the migration is going. And you mentioned earlier that collateral types can be any ERC-20 token, but um, and, and of course, so far, you guys are considering other crypto assets, but do you foresee a day when MakerDAO adds non-crypto collateral types? So the quick answer is yes because scaling is incredibly important. And at the same time, diversification is incredibly important. So yes, um, but this is my, my, my data point. Maker governance also needs to uh, you know, confer on that and come up with what they want. But essentially, what we, what we see now are crypto assets that could be potentially used as collateral types, which is great. But what are we doing in the protocol? We rely on recourse for those collateral types. And that recourse is price discovery in secondary markets. So that means you need to look at those crypto assets and you need to decide two things. One, how liquid are those assets? And two, how correlated are those assets? And I think everybody is aware of the fact that really the majority of crypto assets are quite um, correlated. So there is a little bit of a diversification benefit to be had in including a lot of crypto assets. But in order to scale the system and really get the benefit of diversification, one would need to have a look at tokenized real-world assets and bring those onto the protocol as collateral. I think that's just a stepping stone, though. I think you'll find that a lot of the tokenized, uh, um, no, initially tokenized real-world assets we'll start seeing the benefit of putting operations and processes on chain. And they'll see the benefit of the transparency, um, the, the value and the transparency that it provides. They'll also see the, the ability of realizing liquidity premium through exchanges by not only tokenizing their real-world assets, but also bringing the operations on chain. So 
I do see um, a world where the protocol starts accepting uh, tokenized real-world assets, but only really as a step to showcase the analog world how blockchain can dovetail with it and start bringing full processes and operations on chain. And when that happens, then I am of the opinion you'll see folks start issuing, you know, debt and equity on chain and really transfer, sorry, transform their, their risk profiles of those particular instruments from a centralized form to de decentralized form and thereby realizing a lot of value. So again, the answer, yes, I see it coming. But I also think this is just an intermediate step to the full transition of the analog world dovetailing with the blockchain world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I do see the potential there. Um, but already, even just this initial milestone you guys have reached is pretty exciting. So we will see how all of these plans play out. Thanks so much for coming on Unconfirmed. Thank you very much. Appreciate being here. Don't forget, next up is the news recap. Stick around for This Week in Crypto after this short break. Are you interested in getting into the cryptocurrency markets but don't know where to start building your portfolio? eToro has the answer for you. It's called Copy Trader by eToro. With Copy Trader, you can automatically copy every trade of eToro's top crypto traders at the exact price in real time. No need to study up on markets or develop your own strategies. Simply sign up and copy the trader of your choice. Any profits they make, you do too, proportional to your investment. With eToro, you get access to the world's most popular cryptocurrencies with transparent trading fees, all in one easy-to-use app. Copy the smart money with eToro. Join now at eToro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O dot com. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. Just a quick note before we begin, which is that there appears to be some kind of intermittent construction going on in my building. So if you hear some noise, I apologize in advance. First headline, Ethereum NVT ratio low, currently enjoying diverse token activity. Coinmetrics Coinmetrics released an in-depth analysis of key stats on the Ethereum blockchain, showing that the network value to token value ratio, or NVTV ratio, is quite low, at 1.9, hovering near the all-time low of 1.57 on April 1st. The firm says token valuations on Ethereum have been gaining relative to the value of Ether, with most of this growth fueled by stablecoins, and most of the stablecoin increase driven by Tether. Plus, transactions in the tokens on Ethereum have now surpassed transactions in Ether itself. On top of that, ERC-721s, this is the non-fungible tokens, have also increased their activity, surging past the numbers hit during the CryptoKitties craze, and even surpassing transactions in ERC-20s and Ether. Almost all of this activity in the non-fungibles is due to the card game Gods Unchained, if you listened to the recent episode of Unconfirmed with them, then you know that they saw a spike after Blizzard Entertainment's punishment of a winner who made a statement supporting the protesters in Hong Kong. So if all these indicators weren't enough to show that Ethereum is doing pretty well nowadays, Coinmetrics also points out that Ethereum contract hauls have hit an all-time high, likely pushed over by the current enthusiasm for Gods Unchained. Next headline, Federal Reserve weighs pros and cons of a central bank digital currency. This isn't brand new news. However, what is new is that Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell wrote a letter in response to a 
uh, a message that he received from Representatives French Hill and Bill Foster in September. In his letter, he details how the Fed is currently weighing, thoroughly weighing all the costs and benefits of a U.S. CBDC, including impacts on commercial banking, implications for privacy and surveillance, risk of cyber attacks, etc. He wrote, quote, In analyzing the potential costs and benefits of general-purpose CBDC, we are carefully monitoring the activities of other central banks to identify potential benefits that may be relevant in the U.S. context. To date, our observation is that many of the challenges they hope to address do not apply to the U.S. context, including disuse of physical cash, narrow-reaching or highly concentrated banking sectors, or poorly developed payment infrastructure more generally. Next headline, developers spar over how private Mimblewimble is. Dragonfly Capital Capital published what seemed to be a pretty devastating post on the weaknesses in Mimblewimble's privacy, with Ivan Bogaty claiming that he was able to unmask 96% of transactions. This has big implications for Grin, Beam, and Tari, and others that have begun to use the Mimblewimble protocol. Grin published a rebuttal, and in an article, the block quotes both sides, saying that Grin is closer to Bitcoin than other privacy coins, and concludes that the two sides are actually closer than they appear. Next headline, Binance's Shanghai office reportedly closed after police raid. The blog reports that Binance's Shanghai office has been closed after a police raid, which has forced employees to either work remotely or to relocate to Singapore. Binance, however, denies the report. Next story, in case you missed it, the big Bitcoin heist in Iceland. Vanity Fair had a rollicking feature on the theft of 225 Bitcoin miners in Iceland. And the story is replete with characters like the mysterious and potentially non-existent mastermind Mr. X, the drug smuggler Haffy the Pink, and a henchman named Victor the Cutie, Jonathan, who eventually had a tattoo artist testify that he'd spent the night of the theft with her as an alibi. It even features an escape from prison and cute Icelandic details like people disbelieving that something had been stolen. Finally, fun bits. Lone tether whale who pumped Bitcoin found to be Barack Pierce. Another coin Jazeera gem begins, quote, our reporters watched closely as Brock Pierce meticulously combed, o- combed over the University of Texas tether report line by line, his face concentrated as he chewed his fingernails nervously. He was focused on one thing and one thing alone, making sure he got away with it. After what felt like an eternity, the hippie king of cryptocurrency <laughs> closed his laptop lid and breathed a sigh of relief. They don't know it was me. All at once, the room erupted in celebration. Streamers popped, confetti rained from the sky, and chants broke out. Viva Puerto Rico! Viva La Brock! (laughs) Mr. Pierce had just escaped being exposed as the sole whale responsible for the biggest financial pump in human history. (laughs) All right, that's it for this week's news. To learn more about Stephen and the MakerDAO transition to multi-collateral time, as well as to read about the stories from this week's news recap, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a top rating or review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find out about the show. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Fractal Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Josh Durham, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.